Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other Friday to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. God of Happy New Year, you two. Happy, Happy New decade. Year. Happy New Decade. Well, is aren't people quibbling a little bit about that? Isn't next year the new decade? Maybe no? you are. Not me. I'm all in. <laughs> You're all in? This how is, is 2020. Well, what do you guys think? What, how's the new year treating you so far? I Sarah? mean, happy epiphany. Like, are we not church going people? Oh, you're so churchy. Oh, yeah. So, so yes. Epiphany. Mm-hmm. Have you talked to your door? Um, <laughs> no, I haven't. Uh, but I do have a kid and it's sitting on the counter. Um, we're good. Yeah. I was sitting with my daughter the other day. And the light, it's like a little light in her bedroom is right behind my head. And she was laying under me and she looked up at me and she's like, mama, you're growing a mustache. And I was like, <laughs> 2020, here we go. <laughs> I was just like, thank you. <laughs> RJ, amazing. I think we can make an announcement here. I think you can oh t- my tell gosh. our, our, our you're adoring public. Pregnant. You're yes. adoring public. <laughs> <laughs> Here comes baby number four. No, no, definitely not. Um, yeah, it's been, man, it has been a crazy few weeks. Um, I've had my final Sunday at St. Martin's Episcopal Church in Houston, Texas. And on uh, Tuesday, January 14th, uh, I will be installed as the rector of Holy Trinity Episcopal Church in West Palm Beach, Florida. Um, you know, Houston winters were just, I, I'd had enough. Um, and so we're, <laughs> <laughs> so we're headed south. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so Tuesday the 14th is my uh, installation and then Sunday the 19th is my first, um, my first Sunday. So if, uh, we got any mocking casters in South Florida, uh, would love to, uh, that's a Key and Peele joke, by the way. Uh, it is, it is. Um, I'd love to, love to see you there. So crazy, crazy days in the Heyman household. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. I mean, amazing. West Palm Beach just got a little... Uh, more gracious. Let's mm-hmm. put it that way. No, I'm mm-hmm. I'm I'm thrilled. I think uh, anyone who is down there, I'm jealous. I hope uh, I I'd like to be there on the 14th. I don't think I can, but it's gonna be fun. They're lovely people, so I'm really really looking forward to it. Mm. It's amazing. I yeah. happen to be one of RJ's references, and yes, yes, and um, did tell them uh, in a minute that any church that gets RJ is gonna be very very lucky. So I'm super oh, excited for. You, Thank you. The family and for the church. Yeah, yeah. Well, we all get to reunite in April at the New York City Conference, so that is going to be super-duper fun. Um, uh, Well, it's the new year, which means people are back to the grind. People I've heard about this week is sort of being the week that we launch into the rest of the year, and some some folks are having having an easy time doing that, some having a hard time. I thought we would sort of use this first 2020 Mockingcast to talk a little bit about, you know, the new year and um, the kind of hectic uh, year-opening thoughts that people have. One of the, uh, the Atlantic, 
Atlantic ran a long article by Derek Thompson, Three Theories for Why You Have No Time. Here is uh, Derek. He says, one of the truisms of modern life is that nobody has any time. Everybody is busy, burned out, swamped, overwhelmed. So let's try a simple thought experiment. Imagine you came into possession of a magical new set of technologies that could automate or expedite every single part of your job. What would you do with the extra time? Maybe you'd pick up a hobby or have more children or learn to luxuriate in the additional leisure. But what if I told you that you wouldn't do any of those things? You would just work the exact same amount of time as before. Uh, he Then he goes on to give three different reasons why this would be the case. He sucks about better technology means higher expectations, and higher expectations create more work. In the 20th century, labor-saving household technology improved dramatically. Electric stoves made food prep faster. Automatic washers and dryers cut the time needed to clean a load of clothes. Refrigerators meant that housewives uh, and the help didn't have to worry about buying fresh food every day. Each of these innovations could have saved hours of labor, but none of them did. Technology made it much easier to clean a house to 1890s standards, but by mid-centuries, by, by mid-century, Americans didn't want that old house. They wanted a modern house with delicious meals and dustless windowsills and glistening floors. And this delicious and dustless glisten required a 40 to 50-hour work week, even with the assistance of modern tools. Expectations rose and work expanded to fill the available time. He says that's called Parkinson's Law. But kind of secondly, second reason he gives, which is a little bit more germane to us, is that a lot of modern overwork is class and status maintenance for this generation and the next. In the past few decades, childcare has been the fastest growing component of housework. Since the 1980s, American parents, and particularly college-educated mothers and fathers, have nearly doubled the amount of time they spend raising, teaching, driving, and helping their kids. The economist Valerie Ramey chalks it up to how the... How is that possible? <laughs> Sorry. I just feel like I spend no time with my kids. Every time I kids, I'm like, how is that possible? Uh... I, I, they people must have really not spent any time. Before. I mean, right? right? Like you were just drinking Manhattan, smoking cigarettes, watching whoever was on the Tonight Show. I mean, <laughs> it's just anyway. Archie Bunker. Everyone I was that way. It. Yes. Uh, well, she says that there's a rugrat race led by parents devoting more hours to prepare their kid for competitive college admissions and a cutthroat labor force. Many young people concerned with burnout don't have kids, but their motivations are an extension of the same impulse behind concerted parenting. They, too, feel like participants in a pseudo-meritocratic rat race, and they're terrified of losing status, class, or future income. Young YouTube stars work to exhaustion to meet the expectations of an algorithm that prizes daily content. Lawyers and consultants work overtime to prove to their bosses that they will sacrifice every shred of their personal life to help their firms crush glo global rivals. Some of these rat race participants might truly be on the brink of financial emergency, but a lot of them are yuppie workists who have made a secular religion out of the pursuit of status and professional fulfillment. Their overwork isn't so much about avoiding poverty as it is about avoiding the, physical, the psychically difficult prospect that life in this generation and the next isn't an infinite escalator. That's a lot. Do you guys feel like you have a lot of time or no time or what's your relationship to your watch? I mean, I don't think any, I don't think anybody feels like they have a lot of time. I don't know. RJ, do you feel like you have a lot of time? No. Yeah. I was like, I don't think anybody is sitting around like, oh, I have so much extra time. Like I, oh, there's a story that I don't want to tell because I try to only tell stories that I can mask really well that weren't recent. Um, but, um, 
You don't do a very good job of that. What's coming? I, I don't. <laughs> What's I really coming? don't. So there's there is like a there's like a school that one of our kids goes to, and there's like a whole week where they have like themed dress days, and that week might have happened the first week they were back in school after Christmas break, and every day was a different theme, and one of the theme days was Twin Day. And at last count, I have 54 text messages on my phone from mothers discussing twin day and what all of the children should wear to match in the classroom. And when I see things like that, all I can think is, what were we doing 100 years ago that wasn't this? Because I'm sure it was more fulfilling than this. spending our energy on this and also like it makes me very uh, I don't know it makes me think about how like people in their 20s don't want to have kids because I think if we're modeling this like high level anxiety right in every facet of our lives um for our kids like I wouldn't want to have kids like and it I don't know I think about housework and how you know, I kind of will get a certain thing done, a room that I'll feel really good about. I just cleaned our son's room out and he proceeded to find the trash bag, pull stuff out of it and put it back in his room. And I managed to not scream at him, which is just a sign of the Lord's sanctification in my life. Um, but, but our daughter's room now, every time I walk into it, I get mad at her because there's this thing in my brain and I don't know what this is about, that at any moment, at any moment, Southern Living is just going to come by and just like a knock, knock, knock on my door and be like, <laughs> Sarah, we'd love to take pictures of your house. Like, I'm like, <laughs> who is going to see our daughter's bedroom? You know what I mean? Like, who is going to see? Why am I worried about this? Like, you know, and there's all this projection about like, how is this affecting her sleep? And like, what, you know, what is her, her childhood is full of plastic things and whatever. And, and, and that's there. But I honestly, like the big thing for me, the thing I think about all the time is if I die, oh my God, are the neighbors going to see what our house looks like? Like that goes through my brain, like on a fairly regular basis. And our house is like generally pretty clean, but like there are parts of it that are like total, just like, just like a holder for personal shame. You know what I mean? And like, (laughs) is that going to be exposed i don't i don't know i mean i have it's a lot of i can, lot of I can relate to everything you said you know we like i work my wife works we have three kids um and my oldest son's a senior and he's been crazy this year applying to colleges and everything and at the same time we keep on getting these emails and texts about all these parties that are being planned oh, yeah. you know for senior year and it's like who has time to plan these parties. Like there's so much going, and God bless them because it's going to be amazing and you want to throw everything into your kid's senior year. But it's like, who has time to do this? Um, And then even when I do have time, like I try to sit down and relax and all I can see around the house is everything, like the wall that needs to be repainted or the the, the carpet that needs to be vacuumed or all the little projects that it's like, oh my gosh, when am I going to actually have the time and the energy to take care of the things that need to be be taken care of? Um, But what I loved about this article was just, what do they say, how – the weight of expectation creates more work. Yeah. That's just perfect. The weight of expectation creates work. And that's what I feel. The expectation to throw all the parties, to do everything for the kids, to have the perfect house. 
Um, and then I also thought about like my Dutch relatives who I see on Facebook and they're like on vacation in Italy. And then like a month later, they're still on vacation in That's Italy. <laughs> and I'm like, why? What am I doing not living in Holland? With, have like, you six seen months, closet, you know, six weeks? Though? Like, have you checked? I don't know, man, but they're just always on vacation. They're always on vacation. I'm like, let me use my Dutch passport and just flee to the European Union. Um, but it's all, it is all about societal and cultural education. You, know, you read these articles by people who went to live in Switzerland and were used to eating lunch at their desk until all their coworkers are like, are you insane? Mm. Like, stop, like, go take a walk and eat your lunch. Um, so I'm sure they have their own societal pressures, but I can fantasize that um, there's no expectation anywhere, but mm. in sort of, uh, you know, middle slash upper class America, which I know is not the case. I mean, it definitely puts a lie, though, to the to the idea that if I could just get this product or if I could just get this job, then I would have more free time because it, it never works out that way. I mean, especially it, it, if you're, if you're, if you're, well, if, if your connection to your job has any element of self-justification and we all know that Americans, it's a huge, huge, huge yeah. source of pride. And that's what Derek Thompson has written about elsewhere, the secular religion of workism, that your work is going to remain static. In fact, it's going to increase no matter what the demands are because it's serving a psychological, spiritual need for you. And so it's going to go up. I mean, I, my, Sarah, it was so interesting when you said that like what were they doing a hundred years ago uh we just went and saw the new little women which i think was so so good good. i just think it was funny everything i want in a movie finally a a a movie about these amazing women that doesn't lovely include like just really dofy men you know it's like with so much grace and tears anyway that's a different story i think it's wonderful but I left that movie, and of course, I'm coming at it it from my own context, but thinking, gosh, that's conquered in like the 1890s sure seemed like a much better place to, much more humane place to live. And I know they had problems, and I know that there there was civil war and everyone dying. And, uh, you know, no emails to answer. No emails to answer. No feeds to keep up. I just watched it when they were playing, they had to make up games and all this stuff. And I've also heard, though, that Louise May Alcott, like one of the reasons she wrote the book is because she had such a terrible life and she wanted to write a jolly tale so that her life didn't actually resemble that. But it was still, uh, it, did, it felt like more than nostalgia. It felt like a more sort of properly ordered way to to live. You know what I would love to contrast that against? The uh, the Netflix Kevin Hart series. Have you guys watched this at all? No. It's so, it's so powerful. Um, but it's, it, watching that man work, somebody says 25-8 in the description of him to do all the things and then to and then to struggle with obviously all of the personal fallout that he's had in front of everyone is just um it made me unable to breathe it was like literally the opposite of little women like when i was i was like oh my god this looks you know this man has amassed all this power all this clout all this wealth enough that he could withstand you know real personal stuff happening his life falling apart in front of everyone um and and he st- and he seems miserable on some level. I, d- I don't know. It's just I w- I do want to say like, and this is like I check my privilege, but we do have a woman that comes and cleans our house and folds our laundry, and um and that has that honestly is like changed my life in a lot of ways. 
Um, and I'm very thankful for it. And there's like an ongoing joke in my household where my husband will complain that he doesn't know where like a spatula is. And he'll be like, oh, and he'll say the woman who cleans our house's name, who I will not say her name on air. And um, I will look at him with complete honesty and say, I will leave you before I leave her. <laughs> I know a lot of so, people that feel that same way. Yeah, I mean it's it is like to to have some of that burden helped. I mean it um I honestly feel this like weird kinship with her where it's like oh my gosh like you're making it possible for me but it is still like you're making it possible for me to do other stuff right yeah That's and right. honestly right. i know a lot of people with a lot of housekeepers and it seems like the, the, the now you have them coming once a week and then soon you're gonna be like well i can't live without them twice a week oh and then, yeah totally. then all of a sudden it's like uh you know i, I just i we can't live without someone who's live in and that's mm-hmm. all of a sudden like, it's like what planet are we living on because you know yeah. Watch Little Women. It seems like they they didn't have any servants. It was just right. uh, Beth. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. The That's other- actually our cleaning lady's name. Just kidding. Go on. <laughs> the other thing has made me think of, and I, I think it's related. A friend of mine who's a therapist said something really profound recently. He said, you know, um, humans require – there's something about hu- p- people – they require a certain amount of worry and suffering. No matter what you do, they're mm-hmm. going to want to worry and suffer a certain amount. And so when you no longer have to worry about eating or money or cleaning, you're just going to find new things to worry about Twin and to day. suffer over. Yeah, and it's the same sort of thing. Like you, <laughs> you will never stop. You'll never stop working less, yeah. and you'll never stop worrying yeah. less. Or suffering less. You'll just find new things to worry about and suffer over, which I found to be just very insightful and and true and and sort it's, of you know hopeless in a way. It's also <laughs> but, but biblical, liberating though, a, right? It's so biblical. Yeah. I mean, you know yeah. what I mean? Like that's there's so much talk about just like our like base level being one of suffering, like and confusion yeah. and lostness. And I mean, like yeah, that's, there's a. The, I, I'm with you guys. I I'm thinking about that uh, Andrew Sullivan from a few years ago who was talking about the distraction and the busyness of modern life and that. If, he was contrasting that with church and his experience of church growing up, the mass, he was Catholic, was that it was calm and that it was quiet and that it was slow mm-hmm. and it was deliberate. And and he says the crisis, I mean, one of the things he says in there, and I'm not sure it's 100% true, but there's truth in it, is that the crisis of faith or secularization or the religious nuns or whatever you want to call it has less to do with people sort of making a decision and more to do with their never having any silence in which faith might be born or nurtured. And I think that there's some some truth to that. I, mm. I, I can't help but think, uh, although I do believe uh, everything that we're saying and what Derek is saying is that if there's a psychological need, a spiritual need that people are, you know, they know that they're overworked, they know that they're overburdened, they're not going to quit uh, because it's serving a greater purpose. It's it's giving them a, uh, you know, enoughness, whatever you want to say. And, it's and justifying yet, their existence. And yet it also yeah. feels at the same time that some of our, our Techno- technological devices are making life a little bit faster, and just like the more you know, the more it, 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 once you had an electric oven, then all of a sudden you had to cook more meals and faster. If you have a you know a device in your hand that says you you can answer an email at twelve p.m. or a.m., then you have to. 
And yeah. I think that, yeah. And it also reminds me of another thing that Ada Calhoun, this is, she's a wonderful writer. We've talked about her before. She's got a new book coming out called Why We Can't Sleep. It's about Gen X women, uh, anxiety and the sort of uptick in uh, insomnia. And she was talking on in NPR and she was, she said, this is one thing that a sociologist who studies the generations told me is that our generation, Gen X and millennials tend to judge ourselves based on everything. So, you know, in the past, the question was, how nice is your home or how good are you at your job? Now it's like all of the things. Mm. So it's, are you a good parent? Are you good at work? Are you, is your house nice? Are you in shape? Are you recycling? It's like every single factor in your life you have to excel at. And I think that level of pressure is unsustainable. That's so good. I mean, I totally feel, I completely relate to that. Like it's, yeah, I mean, in, in like kind of painful ways. It's like it feels like it all has to be at a 10 and it's and it can't be. And and, you know, the the prayer and the hope is that like we can let those parts of ourselves fall apart knowing I'm I'm working on a sermon for Sunday. So there's that beautiful text in the Old Testament about like how God doesn't discard the bruised reed. Do you know what I mean? Just like knowing that like we aren't discarded and I love it's like and doesn't quench the dimly lit wick like that we're even though like our light is really dim that like um that God doesn't toss it out I don't know I I like I try to take some comfort in that because like I mean I have a garage so full of recycling right now and um you know it's uh and I've had neighbors comment on how much recycling we have. <laughs> like, Don't die, Sarah. I mean, Don't die. It's going to be bleak when they when they come it's in. It's just a garage she was crushed full of under the weight of reeds, you know? aluminum like cans. Oh god, you guys have to come clean my house if I die. This is where but, we are. Let me say it's funny what you say about having to be a ten and everything because I remember when we first had children and someone said, and we had kids pretty young, right? Like I was twenty five, and they're like, "What's different?" And I said, "Well, I'm kind of used to being like an A employee, an A friend, and an A husband, and now I cannot be an A everything." Yeah. Like if I'm being a good father, something has to give a little bit and I need to be a little more comfortable with like being a BB plus in certain areas of my life. But you know what? I don't feel that way anymore. Mm. Now I now now I feel 17 years later like not being perfect at everything is not really an option. Right. Honestly, which makes me wonder like was I was I wiser when I was 25 or has the culture changed or like, the, the stakes higher so or I don't was know. it though just seven, just seventeen years yes, ago? Was it the that world much was slower? slower? I guess it was. Like, yes, it was. I didn't have yeah ten different streaming services. I mean, the world anyway. we're describing though is one where the pressure for perfection has got to be vented somehow, mm-hmm. and uh, either it will be vented by you know tearing down people online or you know grabbing you know hurting someone, or it'll be vented. I think in some avenue of grace, which is mm-hmm. what we're involved in. But I also think that people are so we're so chained to the wheel that. It's not like we're free to choose these things. Usually the wheels have to come on the bus. And this sort of leads me to our our second article, which is by Catherine Miller in BuzzFeed. It came out in in October, the late October, but it sums up the decade in a lot of ways that are kind of uh, uh, alarming. She says, the 2010s broke our sense of time. The 2010s broke our sense of time. The touch and the taste of the 2010s was nonlinear acceleration, always moving, always faster, but torn this way and that way, pushed forward and pulled back under. The 2000s were a bad decade full of terrorism, financial ruin, and war. The 2010s were different. 
somehow more disorienting, full of molten anxiety, racism, and moral horror shows. Maybe this is a reason for the disorientation. Life had run on a certain rhythm of time and logic. And then, at a hundred different entry points, that rhythm and that logic shifted a little, sped up, slowed down, or disappeared, until you could barely remember what time it was. She gives the example of television, how it used to come on you know, sequentially, and now it comes on all at once. And you're all, not only does it come on, does the all of House of Cards drop on one day, or as it were, cheer. You know, what am I watching? <laughs> cheer, what, cheer. What, that's what we're all watching right now. It's all available on one day, Witcher. Uh, but also, everything else that's ever been out is available, so you can be binging Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and then binge. Right, don't do that. Don't do that. Friends, while you're checking. <laughs> your feed uh while you're checking your feed and you're getting okay so this is she she says we all know what's changed what's really hap- what really happened in the 2010s the internet is no longer a place you go who we are on the phone and in the walking world have merged Mm. This is why algorithmic time is so disorienting. And she, by the way, she talks about the the Twitter feed and the moment that Twitter stopped being a sequential feed of things and it started prioritizing stuff it thought you would like. It started weighting things according to uh, – and the way things went viral, uh, you would miss things that came up, but they would, you would see more of other things. This is why algorithmic time is so disorienting and why it bends your mind. Everything good, bad, and complicated flows through our phones. And for those not living some hippie Walden trip, we operate inside a technological experience that moves forward and back and pulls you with it. Using a phone is tied up with the relentless perpendicular feeling of living through the Trump presidency. The algorithms that are never quite with you in the moment, the imperishable supply of new Instagram stories, the scrolling through what you said six hours ago, the four new texts, the absence of texts, that text from three days ago that has warmed up your entire life, the four versions of the same news alert. You can find yourself wondering why you're seeing this now knowing too well why it is so. You can feel amazing and awful, exult in and be repelled by life in the space of seconds. The thing you must say, the thing you've been waiting for, it's always there, pulling you back under again and again and again. Who can remember anything anymore? Happy New Year! (laughs) (laughs) New Year, New You. Yeah, New Year, New You. Um, I, I mean, I've, I feel like I've just had myself explained to me, you know, um, especially in the sense of not having a grasp on time. I mean, RJ, when you were just saying, like, is it that different from 17 years ago? And I hear this and I'm like, yeah, "Yeah, it's yeah, actually, it's that different. It's crazy different. Um, It's so much a part of who we are. Um, You know, we could there are days when I feel sort of in the worst possible way that I could go into a, 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 a surgery room and a, and a doctor could, like, just knit my cell phone to my body, you know? Um, and that would be appropriate for how much it's connected to me, which is really terrifying. Um, and I I don't know. I I worry about – I was talking to a friend the other day about kind of, like, trying to not respond as much. And I don't know how to do that. I mean, I'm trying to read a lot of stuff about how to not respond as much. You know, I have a good therapist. There's certain cognitive behavioral therapy stuff you can do. Um, And some of that is helpful uh, because there are these things that will circulate 
you know, in the Episcopal church world that I kind of inhabit in a real way because, you know, I'm married to a priest, I'm a priest, um, that feel so important. And what's so fascinating to me is I was, so I was on the phone with this friend who is in a completely different world. He's in the theater world in Houston, completely different world. And he was saying to me this thing that sort of happened in the art world in Houston that was, you know, all over his feed and everyone's really upset about. And he kind of half commented and then like there was just outrage directed to him. And I was like, oh my God, that's literally what happens on things in my denomination, right? Like that is the actual, like that's the A plus B equals C. Like Christians, we're not better. You know what I mean? We're not doing it better. Um, We may be doing it worse. Uh, And like, how do we not engage in all of it. I mean, there was this really fascinating thing that went around last week that everyone was sharing about, oh my God, I can't even believe it. I'm so bored just saying this sentence out loud, about the right day to do epiphany. Um, you know, there's a, there's, you could do it on, I know, I'm just like, I'm dying on the inside, but it's like, if you do it, you know, don't do it on Sunday when everybody's there, do it on Monday. And, you know, part of your ordination vows is to uphold blah, blah, blah. And you could be defrocked for this. You know, it's like this crazy kind of hyperbolic thing. And I was like, am I supposed to take this personally and enter into this rage? Or like, can I just, can I just not, can I just not? And it's like, for me, sure. CBT is how all these things are helpful. But when I read CBT stuff like this, and like, CBD. I literally, <laughs> CBT and CBD, do them together. Um, I don't, cause you'll probably be too confused to do the therapy part. But, um, I think, I don't know when I, I don't know how people do it without the gospel. I mean, I used to say that when my meemaw was alive and we talk on the phone about like, whatever. Meemaw and I would just say like, shoot the shit. I would say, I don't know how people do it without Jesus. And she would say, I don't either. And that's when I hear stuff like this, because you can give me all the mindfulness stuff. And I, you know, I, I love a lot of stuff. It's really helpful. But, but at the end of the day, the thing that actually, the thing that actually saves me is not the thing that redirects my attention, which is what so many things, you know, are meant to do to help us kind of get out of these patterns of staring at our phones or, you know, associating with our online personalities, right? There's so all this stuff is redirect your attention. What, what I actually need is something that just like sweeps the table of my brain. Do you know what I mean? That just says like, this isn't even, this isn't even who you are. This isn't even who you belong to. And that's actually where I, that's the only place I get relief. And, and in that moment, I'm able to see like the reality of God's time and how, how specific and, and well knit in my mother's womb I was and how I can find like actual rest there. So it's, it's a little sad, honestly, to sometimes read stuff like this. Cause I just think like, Oh, I wish these people knew. I feel, I feel like such a Baptist from my childhood, but God bless them. They have their merits. I wish these people knew who Jesus was, you know, I don't know. I was thinking about 17 years ago and I was thinking about all of this in terms of just how my wife and I, like the TV we've watched and how 17 years ago when we were living in an apartment in New York and we had two small children, we had Netflix, but at that point it was, you know, three DVDs you got in the mail at a time. And we had one TV and we would, you know, we watched like the entire Ken Burns New York documentary series together on DVD, 
which is weird, you know. Mm-hmm. And then uh, mm-hmm. we watched, you know, Battlestar Galactica and Friday Night Lights. And and now I skip forward to today. And not only are we sort of binging our own separate things on our own separate screens in different rooms, but then I think about the two most recent shows I've, I've watched, which are um, Watchmen and uh, that Apple Plus series for All Mankind, the space thing. And what's interesting about both those series is that they're both um, reimagined kind of versions of our reality. It's almost exactly what this article is talking about. They're series that don't take place in the past or the future or the present. They're in a different present than we're currently living, like a modified present. And so they have this this anachronistic sort of universal um, quality that is at once like it's somewhat specific, but it's also completely out of time. And it co- totally corresponds to what this article is uh, is talking about. So I don't know what that is worth, but uh, but it but it is true how how um, the sense of sequence, the sense of pacing, the sense of time. I mean, maybe the only thing that pulls me back into it is like um, sports, <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, well, you know, actually, like we're RJ, going to the I was, playoffs. I was thinking about going you. to the playoffs. You know, uh, go, we're we're coming up on the national championship game. Oh, that's so interesting. That still like has and a those are the rhythm. only things that people watch together. You know, they don't, yes. they, they watch sports together. They still do that. Um, yeah. I hate sports and I watch them with my husband. Yeah, because they're still group experiences. And the, also the benefit right. of sports is that when I'm watching them, I'm not thinking about the wall that needs to be painted or the the, the, the rug that needs to be vacuumed. You know, they're a little bit of an escape from the, the, the pressure of existence and the expectation of existence. You know, I can sort of escape for a few hours. Um, I was just thinking about like, how my husband doesn't have that luxury because I'll sit there and like try to talk to him during it. And he gets this very specific look on his face. It's like, <laughs> oh my God, this is my one moment. Because I'm like, how about that recycling? <laughs> halftime. At halftime, maybe. If you're exactly. lucky. Yeah, yeah. I keep I keep thinking about that new uh, Reductress, the humor website. Um, mm-hmm. they, they ran a uh, sort of info article the other day called five noise canceling headphones that do nothing to drown out your inner monologue <laughs> <laughs> we can take you it's to like vineyards in italy to... but we can't address the... <laughs> 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 i think it's uh i think it's true it's gonna be you in the pictures and you know it's you you gotta think you know i always hear sometimes that it leaves me cold you know around christmas time you hear about god entering into human life and that's mm-hmm. that leaves me warm but then so people say human history and time and all this stuff and you'd be like well okay i mean that's that doesn't one doesn't one entail isn't that redundant you know of course it's mm-hmm. time but maybe that's going to maybe that aspect of the incarnation is going to become more radical cuz it's going to become god actually entered into time at a specific time it's so specific. not at a bingeable uh you know 19 I saw another uh meme this week that said you know it's so weird that uh the two the year 2000 was 20 years ago and so were the 1980s <laughs> <laughs> like it all feels like it's the at the same time. It does. Yeah, time, and it's yeah. collapsing together. I don't know what that what that yeah. necessarily means when it comes to the gospel, except for that we do experience some. We we do experience our death sequentially, and that's that's not something that can really be gotten around. Um, I think there's also this goes back to the first article. There's something oppressive about having to make every day count. You know, it's like you sort of want to mm. live one day at a time, and and in some ways you want to let time pass 
and sort of just live your life. And that allows things to go a little bit more quickly. But then there's all this pressure to just make the absolute most of every single moment that, that causes everything to slow down in a way that's not terribly helpful. At least I feel that in my life, you know, and, and, Oh, RJ, no, you're totally right. I mean, I, I I know this won't be a popular contrast with the listeners, but again, Kevin Hart is the opposite of Little Women. And if you watch the Kevin Hart thing on Netflix, it's every, I mean, that guy wakes up every day, like, how am I going to be the best possible version of myself? Who am I going to sign to a movie? What stand-up comedy do I need to do? And then you watch Little Women and you're just like, I need to try to knit. Like, who can teach me how to knit? You know, like, that's... It's just, there's something... I want to write a letter. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I don't want to receive one for the next three weeks. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Well, it kind of... It leads into what is our final piece, which is really a sermon. I don't think really we've ever read someone else's sermon like this, but it's... um, it's really powerful. It's by an a, a Episcopal minister named Lonnie Lacey. Lonnie, if you're listening, uh, hello. Lonnie was at our uh, one of our conferences recently, and then this sort of made the round. It's, it's I like, didn't know that. Yeah, he was at our conference last year. He's in Georgia. He, um, he wrote this, uh, um, this. It's called What We Hold is the name of the sermon. And it's quite remarkable. I'm going to read a, a, a good portion of it, but I've cut it down. Um, this is how he writes. He says, this may sound odd, but one of the most important things anyone ever said to me when I was still training to be a pastor was this. Honey, whatever that is you're doing, you got to put it down and come hold this baby. What? Put it down and come hold this baby. I was a brand new chaplain intern at Children's National Medical Center in Washington, D.C. I was all of 24 years old, just two years out of college. I had just arrived at the hospital and been told that the floor I would be covering was the neonatal intensive care unit. I knew nothing. So I did what any of us would do. I tried my best to look very busy and very important and picked up a clipboard. Put it down and come hold this baby. Before I knew it, the nurse who said this had physically yanked the clipboard from my hands, spun me around by my shoulders, popped me down into a rocking chair, and placed somebody else's baby right into my arms. God, I love nurses. (sighs) There, she said, if you're going to be that baby's chaplain, that's what he needs you to do. Mm. Uh, Okay, I said, but what else am I supposed to do? Nothing, she said. There's nothing else you can do. You just hold him and love him and pray. It's true. When you're holding a baby, there's not much else you can do except just hold it and love it and pray. And honestly, the baby can't do all that much either. The two of you just sort of melt into one another. You just exist together. Whether you know it or not, he's now addressing his congregation on Christmas Eve, you have come here tonight for one thing and one thing only. You have come here to hold the baby. But be forewarned, my friends, for a night like this comes at great cost to hold this baby, this Jesus whom we proclaim tonight, means you're going to have to put some things down. When you hold this baby, the warriors must put down their tramping boots and all their garments rolled in blood. The oppressors must put down their rods. The shepherds must put down their staffs. The judges must put down their gavels, the bankers their pencils, the surgeons their scalpels, the journalists their pens, the scholars their books, the janitors their broom, the interns their clipboards, the internet trolls their keyboards, the leaders Mm. their egos. When you and I hold this baby, when we hold this Jesus, everything else must fall away. Our cell phones, our distractions, our ambitions, our rights 
our wrongs, our hurts, our grievances, our power. But here's the final twist. Here's the insane grace of it all. For all that you and I have to lay aside, for all the power we have to let go in order to hold this baby, the thing is, he has already gone first. Mm. Yeah, you have to give up a lot in order to hold a baby, but think of how much more you have to give up in order to be a baby. He, he's talking about Jesus, could have come any way he wanted, as a mighty warrior, a fearsome beast as a petty king with swagger and prestige and power. But instead, this baby, this Jesus, came like this. Whatever it was he was doing, he put it down all those years ago so he could come here and rest right there next to your beating heart. Such a good sermon. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's hard as those people who preach not to hear it just sort of admire the craft of it. But um, yeah, it's yeah. a very simple... Um, Anyone who has held a baby, um, even their own or someone else's, it's. Um, it, it, I also love the image of the twenty-four-year-old who's oh sort of wide-eyed and really wants to help, and wants yeah. to feel. Most of all, he wants to feel like he's helping. He wants yes. to be. He wants to be thought of almost as helping, and yes. yet his idea of how he can help versus how he actually is called to help, yeah. um, what he's called to do, or how what what his role in the whole thing is, is such this beautiful picture of grace. Uh, you kind of can't believe it, and it really runs against the grain of my own personal impulses, not just his, but and and as well as our you know everything we've been talking about this particular. Um, you know, this particular uh, uh, episode about time. It, mm-hmm. When time does slow down, it's one of the frustrating things about having a baby is you just have to sit there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also one of the great comforting things, you know. Yeah, one of the reasons I sent this to you is I actually um, was able to read this after Christmas and um, I kind of hit a nerve with people in terms of, you know, our social media conversation in Advent because I wrote um, just on my personal Facebook page, like the dummy that I am, um, that this Advent I didn't want. I, I just wrote a note to male preachers specifically because they tend to be, first of all, they preach more, but also they tend to be the ones that preach these sermons at Advent that are like, slow down, you know, take quiet time. Um, all these things that are uh, utterly impossible for those of us who are like baking cookies, organizing Christmas pageants, buying everyone presents. Um, and I got <laughs> some really interesting messages from men Um uh, it was definitely uh, proof that the the wokest guys out there are the scariest. Um, but <laughs> but it's it's true. Trust me, I have I have the proof. Um, when you start to threaten a woke guy, they, boy, do they get riled up about their preaching. Um, but what strikes me is that I stand by it. It is utterly impossible to slow down during Advent, and I'm not totally a hundred percent sure that that's. What the gospel is telling us, I think the gospel in Advent is so, the readings are so crazy and cosmic and, um, and disastrous and, and huge. And then they land in a manger and it is only then when they land in a manger that I'm actually able to be quiet, that I'm actually able to slow down. And it is, in some ways it struck me as sad, um, when I realized, uh, you know, that Advent is a month long, basically, but Christmas is 12 days and, and that we, 
I don't know. It's a weird emphasis to me sometimes that we have on this, like an advent, you know, we, as we said, has become very sexy. And so, you know, it's like advent is in a big way. Uh, everyone's doing advent, but I, I wonder, you know, when we came home from the holidays, I took Christmas stuff down and I bought myself like right before Christmas, um, uh, a, this little painting of a baby in a manger. I mean, you don't even see the face. It's just a tiny painting. And I put it on the windowsill where I'm always standing doing dishes. And I've kept it up. And I don't know that I want to take it down, like maybe until Easter. I don't know because there's this sense of like, no, this is actually when I can slow down enough to know what's happened. Mm. I don't know. I was realizing that last Christmas was actually one of the most peaceful, quiet Christmases my family has ever had. And the reason mm. is because my dad died like a week before Christmas. Yeah. And I think when you have a baby or when someone dies, it's the one of the only times in your life you have the freedom to leave an uh, to lead an expectationless existence. You know, no one ex- no That's one so expects true anything of you except just to be present. I don't know, man. Maybe this episode is about finding a way to let ourselves off the hook a little bit or let each other off the hook, which will never, ever happen, ever. But apparently it actually does take an act of God like the birth of a child or someone's death to uh, to create that to create that space. So that's what I was thinking. No, I th- well, I think as much as God is found in silence and contemplation, I think the real hope of the gospel is that uh, God is broken into time, into the noise and the sort of whirlwind of everyday life and the, and our total inability to slow down and has uh, kind of planted himself there as, as a baby almost. It's like, hold this. Yeah. <laughs> see, see what happens. Like you can't, you have, to put, you have to throw down Abide things that you're, you're holding. And there are the moments where... Um, Right, I don't know. I I, th- I think that the gospel is simply God uh, is God's interruption into our frantic lives of proving and fear and you know all the things that keep us awake at night. I I always think of my dad's uh, line where he's like, "No one wakes up in the middle of the night and said, oh my gosh, what about Epiphany?' You know, no no one, no one has ever done that. Or what about the I mean, what about the Episcopal Church? What do I do? Yeah. <laughs> it's like. Everyone is not thinking about that, actually. No. They're thinking about, why does someone not... How my kid still doesn't know how to swim. That's what I wake up thinking about. I keep thinking about Jim Gaffigan's yeah. line where people say, like, what's it like to have a... Is it a third baby or something? A fourth. And he's, <laughs> a fourth. And he says, like, you're like you're drowning and someone hands you a baby. Yeah. <laughs> and I think there's something really beautiful about this idea of that, like, that... Um, and then and then you give up and you drown. You know what I mean? And that, that actually is In what, the waters of baptism. Yeah, that's actually what the what the grace of God feels like. That sanctification is you, yeah, <laughs> succumbing. Well, uh, guys, this is the as the first episode of the the decade. Any, uh, let me think. Any resolutions you have for the new year? I know we're that's like the least mockingbird like question ever. But any sort of thoughts on uh, any one one moment, maybe of the last decade? Last year we did the year, but a, a, any reflections on a, on a, on a decade past? I know it's all um, well. As, as Christians, I guess we believe there's there's something to the calendar. Uh, you know, I mean, it's crazy because I think about. So I was, oh my gosh, is this right? Is this math right? The decade began. Uh, 
2010. Yeah, so we were having our first child. It's it's um yeah, I don't know. I don't I don't know that I have anything. I mean, it it just all feels really full and hard and sad and beautiful and I'm kind of astonished that I get to keep being alive, which I know is like a weird way of putting it, but um there's a woman in my life who um has overcome one kind of cancer and now has another kind of cancer and it's really, really aggressive and she's got little kids. And I don't know, every time something like that happens, it's like, it's just a miracle that even for as difficult as this feels and as broken as my reeds are and as dim as my light is that I get to keep being here and in, in the midst of a world, right? We're right now we're we're I feel like we are one of those fever pitch moments when, um, the rainforests are burning and I feel like we're at a little bit of a fever pitch moment. It could be because I watched the golden globes and watch famous people shame each other for jets to California. But, um, you know, they were all talking about Australia and then the potential for war and everything. And it feels like we're in another one of those kind of fever pitch moments. And I don't know if it's age or wisdom or cynicism or, or the gospel, but I'm, kind of at a place in my life now where I'm like okay you know what I mean like we're okay we're like in the in a fever pitch again and um and God is still good and Jesus still came and I have this family I get to love and raise and I don't know it's I feel like I said sort of nothing but it's a lot what are you talking about yeah I didn't know what to say until you started talking Sarah and I think what I feel about the 2010s is just for me personally is that this was the decade when things stopped going according to plan, like stopped going according mm-hmm. to my plan. You know, in mm-hmm. 2010, I was living in New York and had planted a church and I think kind of thought I would be there forever. And that was like, you know, that was my plan. That's how things were going to work out. And then I moved to Houston, which was definitely not my plan. Yeah, so when things started stopped going according to my plan, but God was faithful anyway. Um, and it's so, somewhere in there, it, it feels a little bit like I grew up, you know, like be, mm. became an adult a little bit more, like recognize that God is faithful and things are going to be okay and things are going to work out. And if, if I was to have a, a resolution for the next decade, it would be that, you know, the next time I sort of things don't go according to plan or according to my plan, that I would just remember God's faithfulness and be able to sort of walk through that with a greater sense of peace and hope, you know, as opposed to freaking out and, and, uh, uh, desire for control and all that sort of stuff. And that's, that's probably not going to happen. <laughs> you know, that's probably too much to ask. Yeah. But I'll, I'll keep answering the phone. RJ. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Dave. I that's right. Sarah, like, I'm sick of you. That's my resolution. I'm sick of you. No more phone calls from RJ. But that's, yeah. Dave, yeah. what about you? Um, it's interesting, you know, the 2010s or we had our first child at the beginning of that. So I feel like, a almost, uh, it's been a, you know, absolute cavalcade for, in my own life, you know, Mockingbird was alive, but it was an almost unrecognizable form in 2010. Like it was Sarah, I don't think we, I'd even met you at that point. No. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I'm grateful for where it's come and, and, and that, and I'm super grateful for my family and my wife. And, uh, and yet, you know, I look at the future and, you know, we just finished the future issue of the magazine, which is, it just went to the printer. It was really hard to come up with stuff that we felt positive about 
going into yeah. the future on a on a large scale uh, situation because you know yeah. everything uh, a lot of the other stuff that's out there right now is is pretty doom and gloom both on the christian end and the non-christian end a lot of it's technologically based some of it's political and everything's basically things are only going to accelerate more and so it's hard to think of uh, but but the challenge of that issue is to think about the future in in positive terms and what can we say and um I had a moment this morning with a colleague who said, you know, um, it could be that you're, Dave, that you're on the internet too much because uh, everyone is thinking about these global forces when, uh, you know, people are the same mm. uh, and there are uh, men and women sitting around the breakfast table trying to figure out how they're going to get through the day. And uh, the the Lord shows up in these mundane little ways. Stop thinking about global statistics or, uh, you know, movements of this, that, or the other, or, you know, attitudes that you're sensing, um, because, uh, God is actually, um, working in small moments. And, uh, and another, another person said, well, someone we interviewed, I don't know if this interview will go up in the episode uh, that we do about the issue, but he said, it was Robin Sloan. He said, do you have any predictions about the future? Uh, and he said, there's too many factors. You cannot predict the future. There's, it's going to be different in ways that we, it's going to be, it's going to turn out differently than anyone actually thinks because there's too many ways. And I believe that the X factor is always the Holy Spirit. And so every, I, I, if you'd talked to me 10 years ago, I would have had no idea where it was going. And I can look back and say, what RJ, what you always say to me, it's like, you know, given how things have gone thus far, I think it's safe to put that next step forward mm. and to, to, keep, to keep showing up. And what else do we have in, in light of the gospel? It's just to... To, to suit up and show up, isn't that what they say in AA? Like, um, and so here's to another year of that. That's that's all I got. That's Love good. It. Suit up and show up. <laughs> all right. Learned to knit. Welcome to uh, 2020. I hope you guys can see better. <laughs> be, be, be better. Try harder. <laughs> Kevin Hart, here I come. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group. And if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time. 